Okay, so hello, welcome to the 2014 year-end review. You've hopefully noticed for the past couple of weeks we've been publishing the results of our year-end polls on the site. So there are six of these in total, and our top DJs and live acts are decided by our readers submitting their top fives of the year. And the remainder of the polls, which includes labels, mixes and compilations, albums and tracks, are voted on by RA staff and contributors. In addition to all these lists, a few of us get together at the end of the year, like we are now, to discuss who and what we were feeling over the past 12 months and to generally reflect on the results. So we're in Berlin this afternoon and I'm joined by RA's Associate Editor Will Lynch. Hey Will. Hi. RA's Music Tech Editor Jordan Rothline. Hey, how's it going? And one of RA's key contributors, Angus Finlayson. Hello. So, uh, generally speaking, we structured this conversation to reflect the way the polls are presented on the site. So to begin with, we'll be discussing some of our favourite DJs of the year. There's something of an Innovision sweep this year. We had Dixon topping the list, um, came in at number three, and there were DJs like Tale of Us and Mano Latafu are kind of associated with the label, also in the top ten. So I wanted to start by asking if we thought that Dixon was a, a worthy winner for the second year in a row. I would say so. There are DJs who I like more personally, but I, I really do think that in terms of like a guy going out there in the world and being sort of tasked with being the world's best DJ, he's done a very good job of it. The music he plays is still quite good by and large. He seems to, to kind of like take the crazy schedule in stride and his outfits are still out of control. So I would say he's, I mean, basically he's still Dixon despite being mega Dixon. Yeah, one thing I would say is um, it's impossible to say if this is because of the number one DJ thing or just like a natural progression. But I feel like in the years I've been seeing Dixon, he's sort of moved further and further into this thing of like becoming more and more Dixon. You know, the first time I saw him, he was sort of like, all over the shop, like in a good way, like playing uh, loads of different stuff and like different labels, different eras. And it all just kind of came together in this, you know, cool dynamic, like tapestry of different sounds or whatever. And um, now it's sort of like really homing in on this kind of essence of inner visions. I saw him twice this year at Naktikatal Festival and at Space. And both times it was like pretty much everything could have been on inner visions, like whether it was or not. You know, I'm sort of tempted to wonder if that's like, when you play that often, if it just sort of naturally kind of gets whittled down into like more of a routine or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I also know he's really, it's very important to him that the transitions all work in this kind of mechanical, elegant way that, you know, very seamless and whatnot. I wonder if his rise is almost in turn given rise to this type of music being made. So like maybe five, 10 years ago, he just like couldn't get the records that he would want to play. And, you know, just the, the success of Innovisions has meant that more producers are like dabbling in this style. Right. Like for me, it sort of makes him a bit less interesting. I feel like for other people, this could be part of what gives him a distinct identity and what makes him, you know, sort of like, like when Dixon's on, it's completely unmistakable that this is Dixon DJing. Like that he has such a, palpable style it's very much his for me personally i liked him more when it was a bit more like a few more curveballs and like it felt a little bit dicier and yeah uh, i mean i did i definitely did too i think he has potentially less to offer now to big time music nerds like to the guys who are sort of scratching their chins in, in the back 
there aren't as many curveballs. It is a little bit more straightforward and aesthetically consistent. I don't know. I, I guess maybe he plays like a guy who doesn't necessarily have to prove to himself anymore that he's like a great DJ and plays great music and can do these crazy things. He kind of plays like somebody who um, is like, okay, I, I know that I have great taste in music and I'm a good DJ, but I can really give people what they want and I'm going to give that to them. And there's something I kind of like about that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think he, he does it pretty well. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you um, analyze the psychology behind the vote, it seems like his story is one that people would really want to get behind. You know, there's a guy who's known for being like, you know, very careful and professional in what he does. He had this slow build from a local DJ to an international name. And, you know, when he was voted number one last year, it felt like a, you know, a brilliant culmination of that. And I think people... You know, whereas maybe in years past when you've had people like Seth, Jamie, Richie Horton, who, you know, were all worthy winners. But I think maybe what you saw in the year following was like a reaction to that. Whereas I don't think we got that this year. People weren't like, oh, God, Dixon, you know, he seems to be like a less polarizing figure maybe than some of the, num- <coughs> excuse me, some of the number ones we've had in recent years. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for a distinct feeling that Dixon deserves to be number one. Like even people that wouldn't go out of their way to see him, like I think in most cases would agree. Um, he's yeah, number I mean, one material. And- you can always tell with these things when people can't, they maybe won't agree with the number one, but in turn they can't offer an alternative number one. Right. So what we're going to do now is just to go around the room and talk about some of the kind of like highlight DJ performances for all of us this year. Angus, I was going to start with you as you'd um, highlighted a, a veteran UK Indeed, which is Surgeon. I mean, I uh, often struggle deciding on my favorite DJ in a given year because with a few exceptions, often these are, you know, people that you've only seen perform once, maybe twice in that year. And uh, as anyone who kind of goes out regularly will know, enjoying a DJ set is about so much more than the DJ and is about many factors that are actually kind of out of their control. So I actually saw Surgeon twice this year. I saw him at Deck Mantle playing this kind of hybrid modular synth setup that he's been working on recently and really didn't enjoy it very much at all. But I also saw him on New Year's Eve, or kind of more specifically the small hours of New Year's Day uh, in Amsterdam, where I was living at the time. And it just, everything kind of came together. I mean, I think circumstances were kind of adverse. Amsterdam does a good line in kind of industrial clubbing. And this was a huge kind of warehouse on the edge of town. You know, to get in, you kind of walk through miles of metal fencing and then there's like a pat down and a metal detector and then a queue for the clothes lockers and then a queue for tokens to go to the toilet and more tokens to get drinks and so on and so on. You know, it's kind of very much this kind of organized fun vibe, which, uh, you know, isn't the best frame of mind to be in. But kind of in spite of that, he just really delivered in this incredibly satisfying way. You know, everything that I'd hoped that Surgeon on New Year's Eve would be, it really was. The, the moment that really stand out to me was when he played Agnes Demise, the object track, which has this kind of absurd, like sort of grinding breakdown. And Surgeon, you know, is very impassive behind the decks or behind his laptop most of the time. But at this moment, he kind of raised one arm and like slowly clenched his fist. Uh, and it was just the most ridiculous, like silly moment, but it was clearly so sincere, you know. Yeah, that really stayed with me. 
How much were you finding that he was kind of stepping outside of the techno canon? I didn't see him play a DJ set this year, but I think something that's been notable to me in years past is his, like, the way he cherry picks from bass music and, you know, different yeah, areas. less so. I mean, I, I don't know if it was because of the setting. You know, Amsterdam is a techno city. Certainly that kind of a night definitely was. And, you know, people have expectations about the sort of 3 to 5 a.m. set on New Year's Eve. Mm. He did kind of just before the lights came up, played like about 10 minutes of hardcore rave, which was very satisfying. I saw him a lot a few years ago when he was kind of drawing in a new generation of fans by playing dubstep and kind of mixing that in with what he was doing. But it definitely wasn't as kind of recombinant as that. Will your pick or picks were connected to a trip to Detroit you took in the middle of the year? Yeah, it was um, Carlos Dufront and Patrick Russell at the uh, No Way Back party. Actually, in a, it's, in a way, it's a funny choice because Mike Servito also played that party and he was kind of the like really, really explosive one at the, I don't know, that night. It was, he just, you know, his set had just kind of a, I don't know, feeling of an incredible sense of occasion. It was just like everyone there would agree that he was probably the best one. But um, Carlos Soufran and Patrick Russell, which I guess I should give a bit of background. Is that like No Way Back is this... Um, sort of Detroit tradition. I guess they've had it in Detroit and New York. It started by BMG, who runs the label um, Interdimensional Transmissions. And it's like these this crew of five guys or so. It's usually Derek Plezlyko, Patrick Russell, Mike Servito, Carlos Soufran, and BMG. The idea is just like, they just all kind of bring their A game. And like for each of them, this is the most important set of the year. And which it's interesting that you can sort of just, you know, decide that that's the case then everyone thinks of it that way and i don't know everyone does a really really good job it's basically a tiny the place is um this very small very very hot room in the back of a cafe in detroit which i don't know if i say coincidentally but interestingly enough is the former site of the music institute which is like the club where kind of i guess detroit's techno scene sort of first came together and people were seeing derek may and guys who come from chicago derek carter and whatnot and play there anyway yeah, there's just kind of a feeling at that party of what I described before as like small room techno, where it's like totally techno, but you know, you're playing to a pretty intimate crowd in a small room. And so you, you can't have this like, you know, in a big venue, you can rely on atmosphere and these long drawn out passages. And this is more like, it's pretty much just like constant delivery. Like there has to be another really exciting hi-hat pattern, you know, every 16 bars or something. And anyway, Carlos Soufran and Patrick Russell, it really was cool to me, or I guess kind of pandered to my personal taste, the way they, it was like party techno in a really interesting way, like just kind of really riotous, just constant pleasure delivery of this like massive techno. And then with these sort of interesting like new wave tracks thrown in or like even kind of like oddly disco-ish or, but um, it was interesting, you know, I feel like as a DJ, sort of part of the subtle nature of the art is to, um, I don't know, create this unique sort of tone or something. The way the music was so serious for the most part, but then at the same time had a feeling, like kind of had a sense of humor and was very like fun oriented or something. But, yeah, I mean, the first track was the IF, um, I do because I couldn't care less. It's just the most like absurd, like raunchy, almost like offensively harsh techno track. But yeah, and also I love this. One of my favorite mixes ever 
is um, Carlos Sufron at this uh, party in New York, Kiss and Tell, where he basically just plays like new wave and left field disco and kind of post-punk records. Yeah, at this party, he was he was somehow working that sort of stuff in between these just like punishing techno tracks. Yeah, and funny enough, I talked to him later in the night and I told him that I love that mix. And I was like, yeah, I know that's kind of a themed mix, but it's like one of my favorite mixes. And he's like, you know, the funny thing is like, it's kind of more like the techno sets are themed sets. Like that one is just me putting on records that I wanted. That was actually more sincere than most of my, you know, techno sets. But yeah, anyway, it was just, um, yeah, great music, great party. And um, I think also anything that has a sort of added dimension that like for the artists themselves, this is like, they've been looking forward to it all year, both in terms of what they're going to play and how fun it's going to be. And even just the regular party stuff, like who's going to be there. And um, it's the same thing with like free rotation, labyrinth. There are these certain events that have this sense of occasion where it's not only that the, it's not that it's fun that the crowd likes it. It's like for everyone involved, this is like, you know, Christmas or something. Do either of those guys uh, tour internationally? Not too much. They're kind of like, I mean, there's sort of a fascinating little, not little, I guess, quite big sort of group of DJs from Detroit that are really just like unbelievably talented. And for whatever reason, um, it just, they never got vaulted into, you know, some kind of wider um, orbit of popularity. Like Mike Servito is kind of an example of it where um, like when we did that feature earlier in the year, everyone's response, if you look at the comments, a lot of other DJs are like, all right, finally, like this is, you know, like finally this guy's getting some recognition. Like they've been doing this for decades amazingly well. And it's, they basically, it seems like they mostly just played Detroit, maybe like a bunker party in New York and, you know, a few random gigs like that. Jordan, in many ways, your pick was uh, quite the opposite of Will's as someone close to home to you here in Berlin and a kind of new kid on the block. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I picked Cabosil, who I guess I had been hearing sort of all year. In fact, I think since um, the Sylvester party at Berkheim, so like last New Year's Eve, I'd heard from a lot of people that sort of since that point on that he's like really one of the guys to, to see at Berkheim right now. He's great. You know, as it often is with DJs who are playing at Berkheim all the time, it's like finding a moment when you can actually like be in the club at the right time when they're playing because the times are so weird, like 9 p.m. on a Sunday or something. And uh, a couple of months ago, I finally caught him and it was really impressive. He's extremely young and he's from Berlin. He's from Neukölln. Yeah, his set had a fantastic energy to it. There would be some very, very hard techno moments but then some moments that almost felt like a little poppy or like like more fun, older records or like kind of bigger ravey records. You know, the mixing wasn't all completely perfect. Like sometimes it was still obvious that he's like a relatively young DJ. He's kind of still getting his start, but the energy was great. Like the crowd was eating it up and um, he just had really great presence in the room. I guess it reminded me a little bit although in, musically in a completely different way of when I had first started seeing Redhead play around Berlin, like someone who just gets techno in a way that feels very Berlin and is then just able to deliver that so well. I don't know. He, he's someone I'm extremely excited to see more of. Uh, he's putting out good records too. Where would you put him on the uh, Berghain Grimm scale? <laughs> Well, I mean, who's the grimmest person who Definitely plays Definitely Norman Nodge. Yeah, I would put him more at the, the Detman end. Maybe not quite as um, much fun as Boris or something, but you know. 
My pick was Object, who for the second year running was my favorite thing. I saw it through rotation. I actually saw him play twice this year. Once, one of those times was fairly recently at the uh, Pan event at Berghain. We kind of, uh, we were waiting out till seven in the morning to hear him play like a 140 BPM electro set, which was kind of thrilling its own way. But I think kind of going back to what Will was saying, like the sense of occasion connected to it and uh, like evidently how seriously he was taking this set really shone through. It was in the second room, which uh, for a lot of people is like the preferred space. We've definitely talked about it in past exchanges, but it's kind of this rectangular carpeted room with like mirrored surfaces and a huge chandelier. So the weather was very good that weekend. It was extremely hot. I chose to wear tight black jeans for some reason. So I was like in a major discomfort throughout the entire thing, but he just really had me from the beginning. I think the first 20 to 30 minutes were kind of very strong, but it was kind of going through the motions, but then... He built up to this effect where I, I've seen it through rotation a few times. Someone like made up sound will come to mind, but you get this like uh, sense of expectation from the crowd where the DJs like one upping themselves the entire time. It's not so much like peaks and troughs. It's just this like gradual increasing energy. You're able to reflect in real time with the person next to you. Like, oh, how's he going to top that? Oh man. Oh no, he didn't. Oh, and you know, <laughs> he just keeps doing it. But I think his way of resetting the energy, and this was definitely the best moment i still haven't figured out quite what he was doing whether he was playing a track just extremely slowly or it was something he produced like for the set but he reduced the tempo to like more than half of what he was playing so it slowed down to a crawl and then he built up with this like enormous rising kind of whooshing sound and he did that a couple of times the whole thing probably lasted about five minutes but he completely reset the energy of the room so everybody's kind of scratching their heads but then like slowly started teasing out Gansfeld like, which at the time like nobody had really heard the way he kind of like pronounced that so like emphatically you know just really really emphasized the power of the track and you know for anybody who's heard the track it kind of like you know grinds into into gears slowly and kind of in the way that Angus was describing with the one surgeon played but um yeah when the kick dropped it was just absolute chaos but yeah, from there, he was getting into more uh, classic electro bits, lots of like ranked techno. And, um, you know, the intensity was just gradually building. He was taking care over the tempo a lot as well, which is something I think DJs kind of forget to do a lot of the time. Like, you know, they're just set on 120 BPM for the entire thing. But it was a definite sense of progression. So, yeah, I, I did vote for him as my man born DJ. And um, he's definitely one of my favorite producers. I think he's someone who's kind of very cleverly navigated this kind of relationship between productions and his DJing because I guess these days so much of like our relationship with artists is like you know you'll hear someone's productions and then you'll go out to see them based on this and I think he's someone who well he doesn't play necessarily like all of his tracks don't sound like his records he's someone who kind of expands upon and makes sense of his productions it's kind of like here's what I make and these are the reasons why I make it you know, these are the producers that kind of feed into this effect. And he came in the top 100 this year, which I was kind of thrilled about. I think he was like 87 or something. I generally think he's a force to be reckoned with. I remember he did a kind of what's in my record bag interview with The Guardian at some point this year, where one of the selections was the record that you would play to save a dance floor, you know, when things are going badly. And he, I don't think through arrogance, said 
one of my own tracks because this always seems to be what people are there for. And I feel like there is, with producers like Objects, there is this kind of tension almost between what the crowd want, which often is just like, you know, greatest hits object set. And what he wants to do, which, as you say, is to kind of contextualize those tracks and uh, use them in a more sparing way. And I think he does navigate that well. That, you know, often when I've seen him play, it will be just at the right point, just at that peak moment that he'll play something of his that, you know, will really kind of get things going. I think so. it says something that, you know, when you consider that he's playing like classic electro, he's been known to frequently drop things like Orteca, Aphex Twin, and his tracks are still the highlights of the set, you know, or they're at least comparable to to all these classics that he's kind of incorporating. I think it really says something about how much he's killing it at the moment. Yeah, I think also he's one of these guys that like, kind of what you're saying, the relationship between his tracks and his uh, DJ sets, it's like object occupies a very distinct kind of musical universe or something. It's like different from everyone else. And it's almost, it's like everything emanating from him, whether it's like from his record bag or from his, you know, his own productions, it all kind of, has this, you know, certain quality that's kind of hard to put your finger on, but is is very, very much his. Yeah, I think for for me, that's something that sort of brackets somebody as um, sets them apart as as you know something kind of like truly you know remarkable, truly special in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think even on a base level, it's like important to point out that like the kind of basis of, of his set is electro i mean how many electro djs did you see this year like yeah i saw dj stingray at dimensions play for like 30 minutes or something but th- i think the uh you know the core of his sound is like it does stand apart from from what's out there crucially too it's it's like electro for lack of a better term like dj stingray mm. he's an electro dj object it's like electro maybe gets closest to it you know yeah 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 absolutely well yeah i mean i think you know this this is a truism really but if you're going to dj all over the world every weekend i feel like it's kind of important to have something to say which other people wouldn't be saying particularly at the moment the sort of dance music industry being what it is there are lots of aspirant djs and lots of people who gig a lot who maybe have some have a lot to say in their productions but as djs you know, they deliver to a satisfactory level, but if they never DJed again, the world wouldn't, you know, suffer. The kind of musical it's, world It's a means suffer. to an end, basically. Exactly. So it's nice to to have somebody who is so known for their productions, but also as a DJ really actually presents something. I guess in a way, this is what we were saying about Dixon, where it's like when you offer something, like when you play a certain way, that's unmistakably, you know, you, that in itself is, you know, quality vast majority of TJs don't have. I think that was the last line of my blurb. (laughs) (laughs) That's subconsciously plagiarizing.
Okay, so let's move on and talk about some of our uh, favorite live acts of the year. Uh, Jordan, I was going to come to you first. You picked uh, Aurora Halal, someone you uh, wrote a Breaking Through feature on this year. Yeah, well, and the whole idea, I mean, the reason that I pitched the, the feature was basically based on the strength of that, of that live set. Yeah, I saw her play at Stadtbad this summer. That's a club here in Berlin. I had sort of gone into it, like having heard of Aurora Halal. I knew that she was starting to put out records. She was starting to tour a bit more. I was aware of her when I was living in New York a couple of years ago. But I just sort of, um, I don't know, I, I wasn't really thinking that this would end up being the highlight of the night, but it certainly was. She was playing techno, but it was fun. It was like listening to someone making techno, sort of, who was getting excited about techno, who maybe hadn't been into techno for her entire life but that was almost a good thing. The rhythms were really fun. There was a certain buoyancy to the, to the whole set. It was like the, the music was quite dark, but the room felt pretty light. She sort of transitioned at some point into playing a DJ set and it was basically seamless. Like it didn't feel like it was weird that she was doing one thing before and then was immediately moving into the other thing. And I think for me, it just sort of showed that she's a real mastery of this music but it's also able to, to come at it from sort of a place of wonder. And I don't know, you just, you, you don't experience that so much. Like she just didn't seem to be caught up in, in any particular element of it other than like the pleasure of the, of the thing itself. So what was it from a gear standpoint? Like what was she using? Well, uh, she, she told me during the interview that she's mostly using like an MPC. So there are a lot of samples that she's using. You know, it's, it's definitely kind of has a hardware aesthetic to it. You know, it's not the way that a lot of these sort of hardware producers from New York might sound, which is like kind of rough, dusty, whatever, whatever that means. But that's usually something that we seem to use when we're talking about this stuff. It was very direct. It wasn't so much gear. Like it definitely didn't, wasn't like gear porn or anything like that. It was, um, you know, you got the sense that she had just kind of the right amount of stuff and was squeezing everything she could out of all of it. Will, you've gone for the knife. Yeah, I just saw them on their recent tour, which I guess is uh, their last or so they said. But it was kind of a, I had the same experience when I saw Bjork a few years ago, where seeing the knife, hearing the songs they played made me realize whether I knew it or not, they've sort of been with me for like a really long time. And they're kind of one of the key bands of, it sounds a, a bit much, just like of our generation or something. But like Silent Shout came out when I was um, in college and... I've never felt like a, um, to any pronounced extent, like a, a big knife fan. I just like think they're cool or whatever. But yeah, standing there at that concert, um, I was sort of surprised at how I knew so many of the songs and really had like a developed relationship with most of them, like a sort of like a history with them. And um, I guess I didn't understand the premise of the tour that that this was in my head. I was picturing it to be all stuff from Shaking the Habitual. But it was quite career spanning. You know, they played um, "We Share Our Mother's Health," "Passed This On," and um, just kind of like old classics, I guess. But they all sounded dramatically different to the extent where I think they were kind of teasing you, where like you'd have the this moment of thinking, like, "Do I know what this is?" And um, like uh, when they played "Silent Shout," which is the final track, the melody and the verse was just entirely different but you recognize the words. And so everyone's in this sort of in this lurch of like, it's just, it was just cool the way they kind of toyed with the crowd, but also the, the other sort of main or maybe the sort of most important detail, of the whole thing is um, 
this sort of theatrical element where they've got this troupe of dancers on stage and it's completely unclear. Um, I'm sure you could figure it out, but which ones are the actual, you know, the actual duo of the knife and um, kind of rotating cast of people will act like the, the front man or the front woman at various times. Again, sort of like intentionally sort of teasing the audience or something. But yeah, and just before the concert, maybe a couple of weeks earlier, I'd done this interview with them. Bernd Friedman, where he was talking about sort of his qualms with live acts in general. He had a point that kind of stuck with me where he said, the reason a stage is a stage, like the reason it has the dimensions that it has is for choreography. It's like, you know, the same way like a podium is the shape of one person because one person can just stand there and speak and they need a little surface for their notes or whatever. Like the stage was designed just as specifically to have, you know, 10 or more people moving around a lot. It's sort of a historical accident that like then bands were on stages because they were in theaters where there had been plays and stuff. And now you have a DJ on a stage and it's actually not, you know, the two things aren't comp- <laughs> yeah, it's, they're not compatible at all. So I, was, I thought it was interesting that I have no idea if this is why they did it or, you know, but the fact that then when you're seeing the knife, it makes you realize um, it's almost like they saw a situation of we're going to be performing in these big venues on a stage and so they didn't neglect that, you know, they sort of like accepted that challenge and thought like, how, how can we really, um, you know, take full advantage of this? And it was just, I mean, a lot more kind of um, rewarding than seeing like, you know, even just a band standing there or something like the whole format of the whole thing was um, sort of cleverly different from a normal concert. Like they had the guide to in the weird aerobics thing to begin with. And then the knife came on immediately. Like there was no break. Yeah, they, they finished their set, they played Silent Shout, and then they just said that a DJ would take over from right then, and they, the rest would just be like a dance party. So there was never like, there was a last track, but there wasn't this dramatic, like, wanting the band to come out for an encore or anything like that. It was just went straight into a DJ set, and we just kept dancing. Anyway, it was just cool. They they sort of tweaked the whole scenario of, of seeing a concert in these, you know, small but effective ways, and they were just sort of to an impressive extent, kind of thinking clearly about like, what can we do to make this as good as possible, you know, and, and not taking anything for granted in terms of the tradition of how yeah, a concert works. Yeah, I mean, it's striking when you take a step back, just how set in stone the procedures connected to a concert are. Yeah, I don't know, was, the whole thing was, um, the music was great, all the, the the visual side of it, the theatrical side of it was also like really fun. And I guess it just kind of left me with a feeling of like, this is a pretty essential group, or like, you know, it's this is one of those groups that is, you know, particularly kind of i don't know creatively like it's a fucking good band <laughs> yeah I mean, it's sort of funny to me that that so much of the criticism that's been leveled at them for this live show for as long as they've been doing it which i guess is like a year and a half or something like that was um you know that oh it they're probably not actually like playing any of the music on stage mm-hmm. or something i could never really believe that i mean even from people who were like there i'm like but they're doing so much else on stage and the fact is they made an album that probably was basically, you know, could not be reproduced in, in the live sphere. So why not, why not even try? Like, why go through the motions of having like an Ableton set, you know, where basically you, you're just sort of pressing play on like kind of large chunks of the set. Like these guys are actually on stage working, like working their asses off mm. to, to actually deliver this music, to present this music in, in an incredibly interesting way. And I also like how in their own way, they're quite provocative. Like for instance, with 
another thing people said was they're like, yeah, it was annoying. Like you couldn't even tell which one was Olaf and which one was, and, but um, then when you're watching it and you're like, oh wait, maybe that's her. Oh no, that's her. Maybe that's worth the cornrows. And then you're sort of like, why do I actually care? Like what satisfaction would I get from being a hundred percent sure? Like that's the knife. That's the two of them, you know? And um, it sort of challenges that notion in, in kind of a playful way. And then also, I guess more significantly, of any kind of relatively popular band, no one has sort of brought up sexuality and gender issues in the, in the way that they have and sort of like, you know, really thrust it into the center of, um, you know, their lyrics and the overall presentation and everything, um, which is also, I think, fairly significant in its own way. I mean, uh, you know, when, a, when um, something appears in, in art, especially kind of pop culture, that's sort of like validating it as like an issue that's on everyone's minds that everyone is thinking about. And yeah, I think can't think of a, of a band that's sort of other than the knife that I don't know, sort of tackled um, all that or sort of like put that out there. It's interesting too, if you look back on their older records, those themes are still there, that, but they just hadn't turned it into like this overt focus yet. Yeah, that stuff has always been this sort of thread through everything they've done. And now they're no more. Yeah. Okay, Angus, you want to uh, talk us through your pick for this year? Yeah, my pick is a band called Nisen and Monday, which is a Japanese trio, guitar, bass and drums trio. And I'd been kind of dimly aware of the band for a while. I mean, they've been around for, I think, going on a decade. And I kind of pegged them as coming from a kind of a, a post-punk or a kind of cosmichi angle. I mean, which they do. I mean, they play uh, just these kind of extended linear groove-based, sort of riff-based compositions. Like There's very little to them, but it's very hypnotic, very much in a sort of can mold or something like that. But I saw them at Sonar, where obviously they were surrounded by electronic acts and DJs. You know, at the time when they played most of the other stages, it was at the, the day part of the festival, but most of the other stages, there was kind of dance music, you know, pumping out. And in that context, it just uh, suddenly became so clear that sort of on one level, this music is like a kind of a live minimal techno, basically, or something like that. You know, the kind of extremely ascetic, minimalist approach is really exactly the same as uh, the kind of most extreme minimal techno that you can think of. But what was interesting was how the introduction of human error, the fact that it was people trying to like hold down these grooves for... 15, 20, 25 minutes, the same thing, just round and round, like really actually kind of enhanced rather than compromised the kind of minimalism of it, uh, because that tension between the kind of the physical inability to perfectly repeat this pattern and these kind of incredibly long structures, you know, it's just really dynamic and exciting. You almost find yourself willing them on, don't you? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because you're, you're waiting for when that snare's going to hit. Well, there was, a, there was a, a kind of a you know one of those fabled moments where the hi-hat came in and the entire room kind of exploded you know because it was just so exciting that this one tiny thing had changed and it was just really really exciting but i think it does need to be seen live i mean they were playing material from n which is the the album that came out last year it's good on record but i think you have to see it performed to really kind of engage with it and understand it fully 
I went for The Bug this year. I think it's been like an extremely important artist to me, particularly this year. I definitely had a relationship or a long-standing relationship with his music. I saw him at Unsound. I'd seen him actually the year before at Unsound as part of King Midas Sound, which is a group whose album I was really feeling about almost like five years ago now. But anyway, the the approach he kind of takes with King Midas Sound is like, you know, for anybody who doesn't know the album, you know, it's kind of like smoky soul and dub, lovers rock, that kind of thing. And they sort of take that template and like extrapolate on it. So, you know, everything's ramped up. There's lots of like feedback and distortion and, you know, it takes the tracks as the basis, but then like amplifies them. Whereas the difference with the bug is that in the main, like the music that Kevin Martin makes is the bug is really freaking rowdy. I think the interesting thing with this show in particular was that it was riffing on the album that came out earlier this year, which is his second record as The Bug. And um, the album was kind of structured in this, it was roughly split in two. So you had the kind of like more ambient, it was kind of relative, but like more ambient, softer down tempo stuff in the first half of the record. And then all of the tear out shit in the second half. And by and large, the live show was structured in this way. So for the first sort of 20, 25 minutes, you just had this like very gradual, like slow build, lots of like swirling sounds, like no bass at all. And um, the room was like completely filled with smoke. So Liz Harris, who was the first of, I think, five guest appearances, like you actually couldn't see her while she was performing. I think the track's void from the album. But it, it gradually you got the sense that what he was doing, okay, yeah, he was riffing on the album, but he was also like really fucking with people, you know, it was a main stage Friday night performance. He just followed uh, Jam City. It was kind of like, it all felt a bit flat and like, you know, the whole room was there for the taking. But people were growing pretty disconcerted. Like some of the people around me left, like they just couldn't tolerate not having the immediacy, you know, not going from it from the start. But the payoff was spectacular. You know, anybody who's seen him, um, if any of his groups knows that like he pushes sound systems to within an inch of their life. And, uh, you know, Unsound is one of those festivals that has the infrastructure to handle an artist like him. But he was running through some of the like big tracks, like the one Fat Mac, who's dipping into London Zoo classics, but it kind of took on the air of like a DJ performance as well. So he's rewinding tracks, like, you know, MC's hyping the crowd and stuff. I think probably the most notable thing, something I said in my review as well, is that like at one point a mosh pit kind of got thrown up, like in the front of three rows. And if you've been to one sound festival, like, you know, people get quite drunk and, you know, they're definitely into it, but like a mosh pit, something you definitely wouldn't uh, associate with the festival. I think overall, I just, because I, I wrote a feature on him as well this year and um, I just came away with like an enormous amount of respect for kind of uh, what he tries to achieve and the means that he, you know, he does so. He's someone who's very, very demanding and specific about his live rig. I don't know any of like the specifics of of what he requires, but I know he's cancelled shows in the past, just, you know, on the day of the concert because things weren't up to standard. And, you know, when you see these things come together from the way that the strobes are positioned with the intensity of the strobes, with the volume of smoke, with like the way that the sounds is handling, you kind of get why he would be so exact about the way that it's presented. It's interesting because he, I mean, he shares that kind of specificity regarding all aspects of the, his live setup with the band Sun, who also are kind of famous for being able to supply these incredibly immersive, intense kind of visceral experiences. And I think it's something that's really valuable, but also 
you know, I think it's, it's easy to fail to appreciate the sacrifice that these artists are making and doing that because you're constantly alienating uh, the people who've booked you, the crowds that you cancel on, constantly having to like fight with people to get your way basically. And so, which I think is why the majority of artists understandably, you know, accept that some things are just out of their hands mm. and just work with what they have. You know, the majority of artists will just see it in that way. But, you know, it is nice to know that there are these artists who uh, will kind of uh, go to great lengths to try and control these other aspects of their performance. It's like taking the path of most resistance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think as well, it's something that kind of gets overlooked. But I think lots of what kind of defines him and drives him is just the simple pleasure of hearing really, really heavy music really loud. <laughs> Like, how many times do you go to a show and, like, that's the central theme? But I think why it kind of comes to life is that this isn't just noise for the sake of noise. Like, you know, he's a guy who writes killer hooks and, you know, there's all, like, great vocal performances. Like, in a way, if you if you strip some of the more extreme elements away from it, you've got pretty accessible music. Like, you know, it gets pretty um, stabby and belligerent and stuff in places. But, you know, this has accessible elements. I think the collision of those two things is, like, really impressive. That's why it's one of my favourites. You know, you know, basically, I like Let's discuss some of our favourite record labels of the year. Angus, you've gone for Mood Hut, which is a kind of collective and label that's been on a few people's radars this year. Yeah, well, may maybe some angle that's kind of a cliched choice for me. I mean, in any given year, us journalists, we have a few labels that we talk about a lot and like to get excited by. This year, Mood Hut was one of those labels. Um, I mean, they actually kind of surfaced last year and I think arguably in terms of the records released on the Mood Hut label, they were perhaps slightly stronger last year uh, than they were this year, although the Jack J record that they released in the summer is one of my favourite records of the year. But as you said, it's more, it's a collective, it's not just a label. And what it's been nice to observe this year is the, the collective kind of expanding outwards and engaging more with the kind of wider dance music world because when they appeared, what, what was partly so intriguing about them was that they were incredibly fully formed and this sort of convincing collective aesthetic shared across a lot of different artists that just seemed to suddenly be there, you know, for the taking. It wasn't really clear at all who was behind what. There were sort of more questions than there were answers. And that's kind of still the case. They don't really do press. I tried to uh, interview them once about the label and they wouldn't let me. This year they've kind of, they've released another labels like PPU, Future Times, All Caps, um, Going Good and a few of them Pender Street Steppers and I think Hashman DJ came over to Europe in the summer did a few festivals did a boiler room and so on and kind of began that process of like getting themselves out there but it was nice to see how they didn't there's been no kind of dilution of what they're about in the process of doing that you know all of the records that they released on these other labels have been of a very high quality and it's still very clear what they're trying to do outside of the sort of 
elusiveness. What is it as a journalist that kind of excites you and interests you about? Well, you know, I, I frequently complain about artists who like cultivate a kind of elusive air. I don't think that that in itself is desirable. And actually it, it kind of annoyed me to an extent that you know, I really wanted to find out about this music and I couldn't. Uh, so I don't think it's that that draws me in. It really is just the, uh, the extent to which they've created a convincing kind of hermetic world. I mean, a lot of the aliases that they have reading between the lines are kind of shared between actually quite a small pool of, of producers. You know, they, they kind of have this like hall of mirrors effect where you think there are more artists doing it than there are. But they've kind of created all these different characters that sort of populate this universe, make sense together in a very satisfying way. Yeah, I, I think with them, the thing that I, I really like about listening to their music is it it's very hard to place in, in time there, there will be some things like you mentioned, like the Jack J record, which has this kind of like Theo Parrish or like disco kind of feel to it. Some of the Pender Street Steppers stuff also has this feeling like it could have been um, older dance music from the 80s or 90s or something. But there'll be these little production touches that sound very futuristic, like there'll be some little drum part that's morphing, you know, and, and changing pitch or something, almost in the way that like... Um, something on like PC music would do or, or something like this. Yeah, you you can't say like, this is an old school record and you can't say this is a new school record. It just feels like it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, there's a, um, we actually have a Pen the Street Steppers podcast coming out early next year. And I think this is something quite, both what you're talking about is like a, you know, a defined and sort of inclusive aesthetic and what you're talking about, Jordan, with struggling to to place these records in time. I found myself when I was listening to the mix, it's quite concise actually, it's probably only about 45 minutes or something, but you know, when you're doing that thing and you're like, oh man, this is like, this is a classic. Like, how have I missed this? Assuming it to be some like, you know, thing from 94 or something along those lines. And then you're like, shit, this is theirs. And like the last one was theirs as well. And then like the next track comes in, it's like, shit, this is a new one as well. It's, um, yeah, it's quite something. I think that that is also exciting about them as well as they just seem to have this incredible abundance of material. You're just constantly stumbling across mood heart related projects with like vast amounts of great music sort of in reserve ready to come out. And that's really nice to not feel like you're kind of fighting over like scraps, you know, the sort of two good tracks that were released by an artist in a year. It's nice to have that feeling of like, there's just so much to discover. Okay, Will, you've gone for uh, Lux Rec. You want to tell us about the label? Basically, uh, it's a Swiss label that has been putting out loads of records the past few years, but... Um, I guess it's still kind of under the radar. Yeah, the way I heard about them was a couple years ago, and I wrote that feature about the Golden Poodle in Hamburg. One of the nights that I was there, Helena Half played back-to-back with the guy that runs this label. He goes by the name D. Cosmo. It was kind of like, for me, like a game-changing set that sort of turned me on to um, Helena Half. Also, just this sort of style of DJing that was like pretty much tracks with verses and choruses and lyrics just the whole night. Like There was never this idea that you could DJ a party and never kind of revert to um, club material, <clears throat> you know, club tailored tracks. And, you know, often beat match, sometimes just, you know, fade in something way, way slower and just, you know, everyone goes with it. Anyway, D Cosmo was definitely on par with Helena Half. And um, then when I wrote the article and I sort of described him DJing, he just got in touch with me and started uh, sending us their records. It's just kind of fascinating. Like they have this crew of artists that, a lot of them have actually put out a decent amount of music, but they're all just completely 
I've never heard anyone talking about these guys, like names like um, Joe Drive, Lunar Lodge, Cold Colors. Yeah, there's just this like mysterious cast of characters behind this label. And um, the music is really, really consistently good. And it's kind of like, it was interesting having that DJ set as sort of my, the bedrock of my you know impression of this label, because everything they put out is like, it's mostly techno with a bit of some stuff in there that's sort of like Italo synth poppy, but it all has this sort of, the soul of the music is, is kind of new wave, dark wave, EBM, whatever. It just kind of has this shadowy, gloomy feel, but um, not in a way that's like a overt, you know, reference or anything. It's just, that's kind of the, that's the heart of the, of this music. Um, okay. So Jordan, you've gone for uh, the bunker, New York. Tell us about the label and the sort of year that they've had. Yeah, they've had an absolutely incredible year. They've put out 10 records all in 2014. They finished up with this album from Ray Gens, which I guess was kind of taken from a live set that was played at the bunker. I mean, maybe I should go back. Listeners will probably know that the bunker is a techno party in New York that's been running for ages. We did uh, an oral history on them. I guess it was last year, at the beginning of last year. They started a label this year, like as a party, you know, they've kind of got some really incredible international acts sort of in their orbit. Part of it is that uh, beyond booking, the sort of um, booking arm of the party or the party used to be the party arm of the booking agency or something like this, you know, represents a lot of these people in the United States. So acts like Voices from the Lake, Adam TM. So they had all this talent that they could kind of pull on to release on the label. You know, that's already like a like a massive leg up for these guys. I mean, I think it's probably pretty hard to get voices from the lake to come and do a record for your label and with them it's just like kind of a no-brainer. I think Neil from Voices of the Lake also does all of the mastering for the label. I don't know, the thing that was cool for me about the label this year was just that they really did have strong records from people that no one had ever heard of before, people who are just sort of going to the party a lot or from this part of the United States who who know Brian Kasenek who does the bunker. And, um, you know, somebody like Clay Wilson, who's a guy that I guess I know a little bit from New York and have seen him out at the party a lot. Like he's someone who sort of came up on techno by going to the bunker and then he comes and he releases on the bunkers label, puts out like one of their best records. You know, the, the next record was like the, on the label. I think he did the second one and the next one was Voices from the Lake, but everything is just kind of presented like completely flat, you know, like this guy who is a kid basically has been coming to the party for ages is going to be the same as like voices from the lake and Marco shuttle and Adam TM. I think it, it, it's not easy to run a label where, where you're able to do things like that. They did it really well. You know, it, it's, it doesn't have quite that maybe the community or the collective feel that you were talking about Angus with mood hut. You could almost see it as something sort of in that direction. I don't know. I think they, they had an incredibly promising start for this year yeah, if they can release another 10 records next year, I mean, they'll be one of the biggest labels in techno, maybe. Would you advise them to keep up the release schedule like they have? I mean, it was prolific, <laughs> weren't they? Yeah, they, they were absolutely prolific. I mean, I think for a label, it's a very good thing to make a big impression in your first year. You know, you don't want to come out so strong that you can't begin to approach that in the next year. I've seen a lot of posts on social media from Brian, you know, talking about rounding up band camp orders and I, I would imagine it's just been an insane amount of work doing it but if they can continue to get the good tracks if they can bring out more records from some of these guys like leisure muffin clay wilson lota if i'm pronouncing that correctly like 
that would be huge. Were they doing the party at the same sort of uh, rate this year? Yeah, they were. The party has sort of switched up a little bit. I think when Output opened in Brooklyn, that kind of happened around the same time that they were losing their old venue, Public Assembly, was closing for renovations and then turned into something completely different. So they sort of started doing parties at Output, which in a way was great because they have this incredible sound system at their disposal, but it also gave the party a, a very, very much took away the underground feeling of the party. You know, what had once been in this kind of pitch black room, you know, where they were bringing their own sound system and felt very rough around the edges. Suddenly you're at this club that's got the best function one in, you know, North America and very sort of nice high-end surroundings. So they've started um, doing the party at least most of the time now at this other venue, which I believe is in Ridgewood in Queens, that's called um, Trans-Pecos. That place is very small. They can only let in, I think, about 150 people. And they're bringing their own sound system, I think. It's it's um, really gone back to the roots of the party, and the bookings have been fantastic. I've gone for Diagonal, which is Powell and Jamie Williams' label. I think it's a label that kind of, uh, maybe I'd built up a certain like set of associations and expectations of the label that I subsequently had like smashed to pieces this year. I think what really changed my mind on the label or got me to look at it in a new way was um, actually connected to Unsigned again. So there was a showcase, a diagonal showcase in the second room and a couple of things stood out, one of which was Powell's live set. This is something I uh, noted in the blurb that we wrote for Diagonal, but I think it was the first time he'd played live. I might be wrong on that, but it was certainly like the new iteration of his live show. And I think it was like by far my favorite thing I saw at the festival, actually, maybe like the bug was closed, but someone who I didn't exactly know what it was going to be like going into it, I was kind of blown away. But anyway, the thing that he does, if you're not familiar with his music, I mean, it's loosely connected or it's, it's pretty closely connected to like what you hear on record. And I really, really love Powell's music. Somebody been keeping like close, quite close tabs on since the beginning, but I find it difficult to list, to find a, a time to listen to his music. You know, he's making what I describe as a form of techno in a way, but his influences kind of like stretch back a further 20 years. There's lots of like live sounding drumming and kind of like post-punky bass lines and these sorts of things. So the translation of this into the live arena just like just really took off basically. So what I and everybody else in that room seemed to be getting from the set was that largely what he was doing could be described as techno, but it had all of these other elements because rhythmically it's just so messed up. So, you know, if you're thinking about getting off on a good techno set, it's within very like, you know, it's like very defined terms. Like, you know, when things are going to happen and like the intensity like waxes and wanes, but you kind of know what you're going to get with this when the intensity levels are kind of the same, but then the rhythm, just everything's up for question. You know, it like added this just amazing additional element of intensity. In a way, his set was like a, a neat kind of summary of what the label's been doing this year. So he has he has artists like, um, he released the Russell Haswell album this year that was supposedly based on the dance floor and rhythms and drum machines and stuff, but just like, was comically not that but was still fantastic all the same release a record by prostitutes who's someone i've been like really feeling it was an album on digitalis last year which i thought was excellent and kind of maybe like flew under the radar a little bit but it was something by it was a couple of bronze teeth eps there was the shit and shine album 
And, you know, I think everything to a, you know, a lesser or greater extent was getting at this idea of like, you know, club music redefined or through this lens that Oscar and Jamie seem to have like cultivated, connected to the label. I think one of the interesting things in like speaking to Oscar Powell a little bit is that he's definitely not like a, a product of this scene. Like he's, he's not someone who's like necessarily a, you know, he doesn't subscribe to the techno gospel. Like he's not indoctrinated into like the dance scene. He doesn't, he's not really like that connected to club culture. I think his like influences are very specific, but there's something about like the chemistry of his, like his influences and his relationship to techno that gives this kind of like outsider's slant to it. I think it's kind of naivety in a way. It's kind of what you were saying with um, Aurora Halal, maybe, that, you know, it's not that she doesn't know about the form of music, but it's when you're still kind of feeling your way through, you're sort of going off down different paths and exploring different things that you maybe wouldn't if you if you knew the rules and you kind of had those hardwired into you. I think with Powell as well and with Diagonal, there's a certain antagonism. So it's perhaps not just that he's uh, sort of coming coming to these things with a kind of a fresh excitement or a wonder as you put it Jordan but also that he's kind of like being a bit confrontational towards them and you know seeing how they break and seeing in what ways he can kind of rub people up the wrong way but you know productively so in which you know it makes complete sense why someone like Russell Haswell who's like a an arch antagonist kind of a lifelong antagonist would like fit in so well on that label yeah I mean it's worth probably point out as well that Russell Haswell played that showcase and um, I guess he represents the extreme edge of of what they would do on the label I mean his set was um, it was I think it was supposedly be- uh, based on 37 minute workout which was the record he released through Diagonal but I'll be damned if I heard a rhythm in, in any of that you know we're talking about power electronics and noise and like kind of theatrics as well you know he threatened to walk off stage like four times he spent probably 50% of the set swearing at the audience you know he was just jabbing his equipment but I think at the time this actually came off the back of me running like an aborted exchange with him an aborted exchange because he refused to hold his microphone but you know it was the most non-standard interview I've ever conducted yeah it was fantastic he was drinking throughout we ended the interview by him playing uh, youtube videos and just you know explaining why basically the majority of music was shit and how like cinema was the highest art form but i think my takeaway from it was that i'd never seen someone who had such a pure translation of their emotional core into music it's like you know from his perspective if you're if you're feeling these things inside why are you going to why are you going to bother with like the the rules of music you know he's interested in sound he's interested in expression in sound so what it sounds like in his soul is a bunch of noise and you know screeching electronics and stuff you know there was nothing in the way of his message i think it was like you know incredible in that way yeah it was something you said about um Powell's bringing these influences that are distinctly not dance music, like especially post-punk and whatnot. I always thought a very key difference between dance music and things like punk and post-punk and whatnot is um, dance music for the most part is pleasure delivery. Whereas those other types of music in the, you know, like post-punk bands, if they're not confronting their audience in some kind of serious way, or, or if they're not challenging you to dislike this it's almost like they're letting you down or like if if the whole thing just went down easy you wouldn't have very much respect for them i think the past few years you've seen these examples of probably not the first time this has happened but people kind of applying that 
sort of nerve to dance music. And um, a lot of people get very confused by it. Like even when like Lies came out and it was like, well, why do the kick drums sound so shitty? And you know, the, these elements of like sort of putting something in there, not caring if people are going to like this or not. That's a kind of ballsy attitude that that's part of what makes things like punk and post-punk so exciting. But in dance music, it's like a maybe a bit more of a curveball since, you know, the mm. entire thing is meant to be based on the situation of enjoying yourself and whatnot. Like you don't necessarily want to hear earth shattering feedback, you know, but, um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's like the ultimate sweet spot for me because I'm coming at that side of things from a total outsider's perspective and the label was coming at like my stuff from an outsider's perspective. Right. You know, it was the same with the bug, like, I've never been in a mosh pit situation before. Yeah. Like I haven't heard a sound system react in that yeah. way. Like I hadn't heard extremes in sound like I did that night. You know, it was definitely a shock of like, you know, it's kind of wide eyed wonderment yeah. if you like, cause I just personally hadn't experienced things like that before. Yeah. And even just the idea of insulting the audience and that's like a punk staple, you know, and it's like, when you think about it, it's like a pretty strange idea. Like, you know, just like, <laughs> throwing abuse to the people that have come to see you but for whatever reason that's a great you know like i loved that like when i was younger and like to some extent i miss it now like i, I would love to have you know electronic performer um, yeah i mean can you imagine coming away from a punk festival and noting that one of the performers swore at the audience <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah i mean um i guess the kind of precursor here hanging over all this stuff is um regis and surgeon and the british murder boys project that they did where Regis was basically taking that role of sort of like writhing about and getting people's backs up and swearing and stuff and, you know, has told stories about being ejected from the club because the bouncers thought he was just like a drunk patron, basically, when he was like <laughs> performing and stuff like this. There's definitely a tension between those two tendencies that somebody like Regis kind of bodies and that he seems to have these two sides where on the one hand, I've seen him play in a club like Trow, a set of kind of downwardsy techno but it's essentially it's obvious that he's basically like delivering what people want you know which is what you're there to do and you know by all means but on the other hand there's this kind of discourse of like most techno is quite boring this is something he says routinely and that you know like it, music has to mean something beyond simply pleasure delivery as you put it will i mean i uh, i have vivid memories of a blackest ever black night at corsica studios a couple of years ago where regis was playing in room two for he played for quite a long time because I think somebody else pulled out. And uh, at one point, Russell Haswell, who had also performed, got into the booth and was just like stopping the record every now and then. <laughs> and then sort of swearing at Regis and then just stepping back and Regis would have to like start again and try and pick up where he left off. And he'd lean in and stop the record again. And you know, it's kind of like... It's kind of a great metaphor for this whole thing. Well, it? quite, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know how Regis felt about that.
Okay, um, let's move on through the polls and the next category we're going to be discussing is official mixes. I think I speak for the group when I say we kind of struggle with this a little bit to um, pick one of our favourites and this is kind of coming off the back of quite a big feature that Andrew Rice wrote early in the year which was kind of taking the temperature of the mix CD market. Well, it's probably good to come to you first, bearing this in mind, you've gone for Ryan Elliott's Panorama Bar mix. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a coincidence that there are two reasons I would chose that mix. Uh, the simple one is just that it was my favorite official mix of the year, just in terms of it was just nicely done. It's fun to listen to. Um, in a way, it's it's perfectly, I don't know if it's fitting or it's ironic, but that the number one official mix of the year was released for free online. So we're really blurring the lines between what does it mean that it's an official mix for, you know, like this is, we're kind of entering new territory. And it's interesting that just at a time when we're getting less and less excited by mixed CDs, our, you know, favorite mix of the year is this sort of, it's neither one exactly, like it's it's an official mix with, you know, everything sort out with like, you know, tracks, commission, things like that. It's obviously not a podcast, but it's also free and it's only online. I mean, I guess in general, I'm not sure why this would be true now more so than before. I guess the main thing is when I look at the official mixes that came out this year, even the ones that I um, like, like Marcel Detman's Fabric, Pangea's Fabric, with each of them, including Ryan's mix, I just, like however good they are, I still have this feeling that this really pales in comparison to like what they sound like in a club or maybe in some cases even what they would sound like on just a normal podcast or something that for whatever reason, there's something about this format doesn't do justice to the art form that it, you know, delivers. And there was obviously kind of a heyday of mixed CDs, but yeah, nowadays it's funny. There's just this kind of, when a mix CD comes out by an artist that you like, at least for me, it's like, I fully expect that it will be kind of decent at best. No matter, no matter how good they are as a DJ or how much I like them, like my expectations are just very low for, for any official mix. Hardly ever, you know, pleasantly surprised. Or, I guess this was sort of why I chose the mix that I chose, which was uh, Prince Thomas's Rainbow Disco Club Volume 1. This was a commissioned mix, uh, a mix you could actually like go out and buy on CD that did have the feel of a live, like an actual live set in a club. It, you know, it actually felt maybe like something that you would you would get on a podcast whether it was a live recording or just something that he threw together in his in his bedroom some of the mixing was on you know a little like less than fully polished i think angus we were talking about this before and you said you know it doesn't sound like it you know this was the 55th take or something right, like yeah. this was something he he had an idea he recorded it and they then sorted out all the licensing probably and released it on cd that would be my guess about how it came together but somehow if a mix cd during this sort of height of the mix CD would have been something that was just like labored over, perfectly sequenced, perfectly layered. The fact that somehow we could get something that felt extremely off the cuff and like that's going to be what takes our notice. I, I mean, I think it kind of speaks to the to the era. I also love some of the inclusions and the fact that Prince Thomas is like, quote unquote, a disco guy and he opens with a Dazi track, mm -hmm. I think. Like, you know, shows what we know. Yeah, and strangely, my um, selection, which is Rarish's Fabric Mix, this is an artist for whom the mix CD is the only format that he wants to communicate with his audience. And I think he's released, I think this was his 
second official mix. I think he put out uh, some uh, split CD on Cocoon a few years back, but he's not really releasing much music right now. I think for me, it probably, I wouldn't say it was necessarily my favorite mix of the year, but it was one of the mixes I was most interested in hearing. So he's an artist who I've had like quite a long-standing relationship with kind of there the, when they came around the first time with the uh, wave of interest connected to RPR, Raresh, Radu and Pedro. But he's definitely not a DJ who I've been to see play over the last couple of years. He's not someone whose sound I'm necessarily checking out on a regular basis. You know, he pushes a style of music that like definitely had its moment in the sun. Like, you know, I'm talking about kind of minimal and stripped back howls, kind of like more groove focused textures. So I think it was really nice to kind of come back to him and have the sense that what he's doing wasn't just like, of its moment or something and people aren't just like idly following him because he knows Ricardo Villalobos you know there's a DJ who doesn't have these other endeavors that are getting in the way he doesn't do interviews he barely releases any music I think he's put out like one or two 12 inches ever and he's pretty much it seems just digging for music I wouldn't say there were any necessarily any curveballs in the mix but I think what I liked about it the most was the palette you know I think um if you compared it to something like Presumers mix that he put out this year, which I also enjoyed, but was kind of like more classically rooted in its sounds and the palette he was using. It kind of reminded me, Rarish's mix reminded me why I liked these minimal strange in the first place. You know, I think people took it to like a ridiculous degree with the, um, you know, the clicks and the bleeps and the electronics and stuff. But I think if it's done kind of like subtly and elegantly and sort of deployed in a way that doesn't kind of like take it to a caricature of itself, it can still be like, extremely thrilling music i think as matt sort of noted in his review like he he's a dj who's like very much in control of like pacing and sequencing and stuff like he doesn't have lots of tools to work with you know his palette is very restricted but he really knows how to work up the the few elements that he does have i think there's obviously like a, a tightrope with this stuff in a way you know between like maintaining an interest and getting by on the thrill of just a few elements but I think he's like at this moment in time, he's better positioned than most to kind of like, you know, maneuver that and walk that tightrope. I guess I would echo the rest of you in saying that um, I struggled to pick a favorite. I mean, actually, when I looked back, there were very few official mixes this year that I, that kind of drew my attention enough for me to listen to, you know, more than once or twice. I mean, probably the, the prosumer fabric mix was my favorite, but um, I do think it's, it's interesting to consider as you guys touched on, like how different the process of assembling an official licensed mix is to the experience of DJing. Um, and, you know, when you, when you consider that most people turning in a, an official mix in a given year will be probably new, this will be their first official mix, you know. Most people who do a fabric mix or whatever, it's a new experience to them. The way it works, as far as I can tell, is that you compile a massive list of tracks that you possibly like to include. Then there's a lengthy licensing process where the respective uh, license holders are contacted, and, you know, you, a proportion of those tracks are approved. By that point, you're probably already bored of playing them as a DJ because most DJs have quite a fast turnover. Then you have to, like, assemble them into this mix that can't have any flaws because, you know, this is your calling card. This is your, this is your like, business card you have to impress. And I think, yeah, you know, you, you can often tell, you know, often official mixes are, like, very thoughtful, but perhaps not very exciting. I think that's my... 
You still think that there's something to be said for the extra attention that a mix such as this gets, though? Like, aside from the sort of creative limitations that have to be placed on them, do you think there's something to be said, you know, just for having that press release that says, (laughs) you know, he is doing this mix on DJ Kicks, on Fabric or Compact? I'm sure it opens doors. I mean, there's that from a sort of professional perspective. But also, you know, there's maybe an argument that, you know, we're, we're all presented with, like, dozens of free mixes per day and I think we get quite blasé about them and often you stick something on in the background and listen to it once and then you're like right well I've done that now that's Mm. that that was just languish on my iTunes for the next couple of years and then I'll delete it so maybe there's something to be said for making a mix where people really take it seriously because they recognize the kind of effort that's gone into it and what it represents as a statement so you know maybe people spend more time with it and they kind of listen to it more closely I think that's a really interesting point that you make that there's a, a different way that we listen to these things I mean with DJs who are putting out a lot of mixes online or when a lot of their mixes are ending up online, like from live sets or whatever, we can sort of, you know, we can do this thing where we listen to it once and then it sort of is filed away on our iTunes. We never listen to it again, but we might get four or five opportunities over the course of the year to listen to a set from this person. And we're still listening to them a lot. We're just not listening to the same mix of theirs a lot. The idea that there could be a DJ mix that is put together to be listened to many, many times, to be taken apart, to be really looked at as like, okay, this is how they sequenced it. This is how the story unfolds. You know, just something that you would never really consider from just a ripped club set, from something someone made in their bedroom. I think it is interesting. I I think our listening habits have probably been completely changed by SoundCloud and, you know, MixCloud and, and whatever. I mean, I think a possible middle ground, and this kind of brings me on to the um, online mix that I picked, a possible middle ground seems to be, it's almost one of perception. So I think a good example of this would be the uh, Solitaire series that One Man's been doing. We've ended up writing news about this mix series. Like, ostensibly, he's releasing a DJ mix online for free, like in the way that you would a podcast. But there's been something in the presentation, whether that's with the artwork, the way the track list is handled, like even just the way that it's, presented to the press that's kind of like given it this sense of occasion that like you wouldn't otherwise connect to just like a mix that was thrown out there i mean i guess the ryan elliott sort of panorama bar mix gets to this idea as well it's the the difference is that they've licensed the tracks but you know it was there on soundcloud it was nicely presented it was available as a wav there were liner notes there were all these different things in a package so i do wonder if this is like enhanced podcast idea it might be like you know one possible future for this only key thing of what you just said is uh the licensed tracks like that's under the hood like no one really that's not a upfront detail about the mix itself but anyone can do this nice presentation with a high-res image and a WAV file and all that stuff. There's nothing stopping anyone from just releasing a podcast that way. So you could see, I don't know, sort of podcasts rising to the level of this online official mix and the distinction becoming pretty much non-existent. Let's go back to my online mix pick. I think um, it was Ryan Hemsworth's Cool DJ Mix, and I think this really spoke to like the very off-the-cuff, like freewheeling approach that you can take with these sets. Like... He had like mainstream rap in there. He had these like pieces of music that were like, I think commissions for some other project that he was doing, maybe like a soundtrack or something that the complications in like getting them onto a CD would have been like enormous. He probably couldn't have played all of the hip hop tracks that he included in this mix. 
the reason it stood out to me and uh, the reason I was listening to it a few times was just like the additional effort that we're talking about was just like very, very evident. Like he recorded his own like little cute intro and I think that like really set the tone for the mix. I'm quoting here, but he said, I'm Ryan Hemsworth. I'm a young adult who still wears a retainer sometimes because my dentist tells me to, you know, <laughs> it's it, in this like, 15 year old girl's voice and that kind of like set the tone for, for you know if you hear that at the start you're placed in a certain frame of mind for a mix like no matter what comes after that <laughs> i think he made sense of a lot of different styles of music that became like incredibly popular this year like you know mainstream rap bangers their, and their infiltration of different scenes kind of being one but he was a dj who i think kind of handled the cute thing the pc music thing like better than anybody i heard this year like playing it among other related tracks and like his own music and sort of interconnected forms kind of like recontextualize it and put it in a light that I thought like made it I know it just you put it in a very favorable light basically I am a sucker for this kind of thing I mean some people might think of it as a gimmick or something like he plays it in Alanis Morissette track in the middle which one I bet it's, it was head over feet. Um, <laughs> deep cut. Yeah, deep. <laughs> but, um, it's a head, you know, head like, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those mixes and it comes in the office and it's like, oh God, Alanis Morissette. It's like, <laughs> oh shit. But, you know, the way you make sense of it and like, that's, that's going to stick in my mind. It's going to be the mix with Alanis Morissette on it. Like, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't call to mind too many DJ mixes. Like, oh yeah, it's the one with that on it. And, um, you know, I think if it's like, okay, that could be seen as a gimmick, but if it's done in the spirit of the mix and you've presented it in a way where the track before it like flows perfectly and then the track coming out of it makes perfect sense as well. It's like, you've made me see Alaris Morissette in a whole new light. You know, there's, there's something to be said for that, it's I think. the true skill of a DJ. <laughs> I think this is the first RA exchange where we've said Alanis Morissette. That's, the, I think that's yeah. a certainty. Yeah. <laughs> Angus, you went for uh, TCF. What was the platform that was on? Well, to be honest, my, my knowledge is hazy in this area. So the, ti- the title of the mix is like, as he likes to do, this kind of incomprehensible string of digits. And I think it's a blog called Waves or Bad Waves or something like that. But I just found it on his SoundCloud, um, kind of a word of mouth thing. And his kind of original productions, I think are interesting and show a lot of promise, but I'm yet to be like completely blown away by them. But this mix really to me is just like on another level. I mean, it features a few of his tracks and also lots of things that were kind of precursors to his sound like Rasta Noton um, and various kinds of like clicky abstract computer music stitched to get together into this incredibly kind of dense collage. And then there's this like undercurrent of, uh, from this quite kind of sterile cryptic surface, like beneath it, there's this undercurrent of like incredible emotionality and kind of romanticism. So he plays a couple of Ennio Morricone tracks that are just like so unexpected, but so sort of spine tingling almost. You play some William Basinski and things like this. And um, I just, I think it's a, it's a wonderful combination, but also the reason why it kind of really stayed with me is that probably the best example of something that I've been getting increasingly excited about this year, which is free mixes that kind of really probe at the boundaries of the form. And clearly someone's put a lot of work in, you know, it's collagistic in a very involved way. It's not simply blending tracks together, though that's obviously fine too. But by doing that, by being more involved, you can kind of say uh, something else you can actually present a kind of aesthetic world that's really 
that is your own and is very much more than the sum of just the tracks that have gone into it. It's funny, actually, I came uh, from the other side. So I didn't hear that mix and I don't know if he actually DJs, but I saw his live set on sound. And um, now I've heard about some of those inclusions, like his live set makes a bit more sense. Like everything had this kind of like ethereality kind of, you know, it was kind of trance-like in a way. You know, there were emotions from like very cold digital textures. It wasn't like a resounding success, but like I could totally see what he was going for. Mm. Will, tell us about your selection. You went for STL, kind of, I guess is like a RA favorite at this point. Yeah, STL. He's got a bit of a cult following, I guess, because he has a very specific, you know, signature sound that kind of never gets old, even though he, you know, churns out like a certain number of records per year that in the end all sound pretty similar, but for some reason, something about, you know, this sort of, crunchy drum sounds and eerie melodies. Um, it has so much personality that it's like we would all be happy for him to just carry on like this, you know, forever and ever. But um, yeah, I guess this mix came from like the something newsletter, but it, it was just kind of funny how it's like sort of mysterious character doesn't play and is quite cryptic. And, and you know, like he, we did an Ari interview with him, but I think it was, it was a few years ago, Todd did the interview and, it was like agreed ahead of time how few questions he was going to answer. Anyway, so it sort of made it funny and surprising that he just randomly is like, yeah, I felt like doing a mix, so here's my new mix. And um, and then it's all these sort of like rave tunes. Like he has like Moby Go. And um, I, know, I guess on a nerdy level, it's sort of like a fascinating glimpse into like his weird little, you know, world he's got. But um, it's also just funny how it was just, he just felt like doing a mix and, you know, just, just sent it out. But yeah, in a way it's, it's like, uh, sometimes it's, it's interesting to learn kind of like where artists are at in terms of like what records they listen to and stuff. And with him, it seems like there's no evidence he's listened to any new records, you know, in the past 10 years or at least, mm-hmm. but yeah, everything on there is great. And it kind of has this like hammy sort of like, I don't know, totally unpretentious energy that is totally not what you would have expected from STL but then it also kind of makes kind of makes sense given how his records sound but it sort of reminds me in a sort of opposite way of like what I was talking about with Russell Haswell where there's not really much in the way of his message like he could probably only release music on his own label like it feels like he produces a bunch of tracks and just kind of releases it a couple of weeks later or something. Like yeah. there's no, you know, record label red tape surrounding what he does. <laughs> he just kind of like, Oh, I fancy making a mix this afternoon and uh, post it later that day or something. Well, I like these artists that um, I think Ricardo Villalobos is like this too, maybe Shackleton in a way where it's just like, you almost get the impression that just making these tracks is just like, an activity in their life, you know, and they, they just sort of like, just keep on pumping them out. And um, this is just a thing that they do. Like they're, you don't get the impression that they're thinking like, what's my next move going to be. It's just like, they go in the studio, make some shit. And then they're like, oh, okay, that was pretty good. I'll, I'll release that one, I guess. But something about it feels so authentic. Like th- this is just um, the kind of like what you said earlier, like this is just how they express themselves. It's like, for whatever reason, the way that they want to express themselves has, sort of gotten um you know honed further and further into this very specific thing and yeah it's like they might just make stuff that sounds exactly like this forever but you know all the power to them 
Jordan, you've gone for uh, Douglas Sherman Beats in Space session. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Douglas Sherman is not, like, a big-name DJ, but he sort of, in my opinion, probably has the biggest gig out there, which is basically that he plays records at the loft now, um, sort of in the stead uh, of David Mancuso, who is, is still around. And if you are lucky enough to go to the loft in New York, you might see him there, but he's mostly sort of hanging off on, to, on the side. He actually called a friend of mine once to personally confirm his um, reservation at the party, which I know my friend got a big kick out of. The way that records are played at the loft, people probably know about this. There's no beat mixing. There's no beat matching. It's purely you play one record from the beginning all the way to the end. Everybody claps and then they play the next record. I've been lucky enough to go to the loft maybe four or five times over the last four years, five years. And uh, it's without a doubt the best party I've ever been to almost every time. There's not a whole lot of variation from party to party. Um, At this point, I can really only go once a year, which I think is fine because that gives the party enough time to sort of reset and bring in some new tunes but the the way the music is presented the way the night is structured and just the the atmosphere in the place i mean you have everybody from like occasionally you'll see like a little kid running around all the way up to like people probably in their 70s uh, maybe older who were going to the loft since the very beginning i've bumped into university professors on the dance floor there the last one I went to, there were like, I cried maybe like three times. I mean, it was just, it's that kind of party. It's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was in the taxi on the way home and everybody was just like weeping because the thing was over. It was crazy. Jesus. But um, <laughs> basically, I mean, The Loft is obviously a huge influence on Tim Sweeney, who, who does Beats in Space. Getting Douglas Sherman to come on the show and basically present like a Loft style set, I know is a huge get for him. And I was excited about it as well in part because I might be able to ID some of the tracks that I was hearing at the party the last time I was there, which was in, in May. And, and basically the set delivered. I, I mean, it really showed how sort of vast the uh, range of music that they'll play uh, at the party is, but also how it all seems to fit together. I mean, I'm looking at the track list now. So they played Blaff by Telephones, which was a pretty pretty big tune from this year. But then a little bit later on, they played like My Rendition by the Martinez Brothers and also uh, sort of infamously uh, a Dead Mouse and Cascade track, which sort of raised some some eyebrows. And there was a, there was a good deal of debate between my friends and I about like whether it worked or not. And uh, we still haven't really decided. Which side of the fence do you fall on? Me? I, I think it worked, but um, also embarrassing. <laughs> um, and directly after the Dead Mouse and Cascade track, he plays uh, like Lord of the Isles. So, and, but somehow it, it yeah, there, there's a there's a flow to it and it worked. And I, I would say that like, yeah, being at the party is great. I mean, obviously you can't listen to a podcast and have a balloon drop, you know, in your office while you're wearing your headphones, but, um, or can you, <laughs> <laughs> but, but for, for me, um, it was kind of nice to, you know, have this little keepsake of the party and, um, to maybe introduce people to, to this way of thinking about music, this way of putting music together. It was cool. I was just gonna say, um, how much of the, music that's played at the loft and maybe in the mix i haven't heard the mix mm-hmm. is like canonical loft classics um, i was surprised that they you the, all the tracks you listed were sort of from the last few years you know? i mean there there's definitely some canonical stuff that that works its way in there you know like the gap band and like love is the message you know like that kind of stuff still definitely plays into it 
it's funny, like what becomes part of the loft canon. So like inspector Norse is part of the loft canon. Now, you know, they play that at like every party, you know, little fluffy clouds by the orb is part of the loft canon. You know, it, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. What, what actually works in there. So albums, Andy Stott's come out as the uh, number one album of the year on Resident Advisor. Jordan, you wrote this review. Do you uh, feel as though he was a worthy winner? Yeah, I, I absolutely stand by that. I probably said most of what I wanted to say about it in the review. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add other than that I'm still listening to this record quite a lot now. And sometimes when you finish a review, no matter how good or bad something is, you're just ready to not listen to it for a long time. I think it showed a lot of artistic growth for Andy Stott. I think it really is a great dance music album in addition to being a good album sort of that people might be who, who aren't so interested in dance music might be more interested in. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It, it's kind of a dark record, but I found it to just be like incredibly pleasurable, which is I think the way Andy Stott has, has always worked, but maybe this record more than the others for me. Yeah, I mean, he, um, his kind of pop sensibility, I think, is what is the reason for his kind of extraordinary success. Extraordinary in the sense that it's not ordinary from a producer of his background and operating uh, out of a label like Modern Love to kind of get the kind of adoration and the broad appeal that he does. For me, the album, I mean, in individual parts, it worked, but I found it quite incoherent, actually. To me, I could hear traces of the other projects that he's done in the interim since his last kind of body of solo work, which is the Million Andrea album with Miles from Dendike Stair, which is like very much more trying to be a kind of exciting, intense dance record rather than a pop record. And also the rage kind of jungle revival stuff that the two of them do together as well. Uh, to me, the, the Stott album tried too much to kind of bring those things in. And I kind of wished that it would just be more, you know, Andy Stott, the kind of pop artist, I guess. Yeah, I guess where I disagree is that for me, the last full length felt a little bit more like a genre exercise. You know, you kind of take house and you slow it down and you grease and grime it up. And then you kind of present that. I mean, it was cool, but what I liked about this record was that it was really far reaching like maybe what, like this incoherence that, that you found to be sort of distracting or to not be maybe sort of the best way of presenting Stott. To me, it just, it, I was like really happy for that, that incoherence, I guess. So I'm guessing there was a level of coherency in what you have picked. Uh, yeah, very much so, which is uh, Koch, the Lee Gamble album, which I think, I mean, it was well received, but I think uh, 
slightly didn't get the kind of response that I feel it deserved. I mean, he is an artist who kind of emerged, came into most people's kind of attention in 2012 when he released two records at pretty much the same time, uh, one of which was Diversions, which was this kind of ambient deconstruction of Raven Jungle, and one of which was uh, Dutch Tavashtar Plumes, which is like a kind of very idiosyncratic techno album where you could really tell he was coming from like a kind of abstract computer music background, which is his background. Koch, like, is essentially those two aesthetics, like, mashed together. And uh, I think given the kind of hype around him and the level of expectation, I think people were slightly disappointed that to an extent everything in it was like followed on from things they'd already heard from him. It's also very long. It's like an hour, hour and 20 minutes or something. And in terms of narrative, it's incredibly kind of labyrinthine. Like it goes all over the place. It kind of denies you easy moments of like, this is the climax of the album or this is where it's trying, this is where it's going. This is what it's trying to do. But for me, like weirdly, these qualities that at first I thought I found it quite disappointing for these reasons. The more I listened to it, the more I just got kind of completely sucked into it. I mean, he talks a lot about kind of dream states and altered states and things in his interviews. And it's to me that really kind of nails it. It's like a, it's a kind of a dream logic, basically. And it's just I've really enjoyed kind of getting kind of absorbed in that logic this year. Yeah, I think the same is true of many of the qualities you're describing of my pick, which was the um, Arca Records. And it's a record that I think in a way, although it was well received in some quarters, kind of wasn't in others. And I think um, maybe it was a little bit a victim of his earlier success. I think the amount of hype that had kind of attached itself to to him coming off the back of uh, the music he had released, his work with Twigs, him making appearances on the Kanye West record. There kind of been rumours about his Bjork collaboration swirling around for about a year. And um, I think that what the record kind of lacked maybe was some of, some of the more structured elements of his older music. I mean, I was an enormous fan of the stuff he did in Uno, like Stretch 2 in particular. But he was dealing in kind of hip-hop forms in a way. It was still the same kind of freewheeling palette. You know, his palette and his sound design has always been like very experimental, very far-reaching, but he was loosely basing his ideas within a template. There were more vocals and these sorts of things. So I think when I first sat with the record, I was a little bit underwhelmed and I felt underwhelmed and overwhelmed by just the sounds and the frequencies you know it's a record that has like a level of there's like a through line for sure there's definitely some coherence in the types of synths that he's using even the frequencies that he's working at very in like the upper mid-range you know it's very like speaking kind of frequency which i think was why i found it quite fatiguing to begin with but i think it started to make more sense when i saw his uh, live show at the ica recently and um I kind of went into it with a certain amount of like, you know, trepidation. I wasn't sure what to expect. I'd heard some like pretty bad reports from his US tour. I think Andrew Rice, colleague of ours, had kind of seen him somewhere and not really enjoyed it. And I'd heard other things about potential like problems with the way that he was working. But I think while it wasn't perfect, it really came together in a way that made sense. You know, he's very, very closely associated with Jesse Kander, who does all his... Uh, visual stuff and his videos and his artworks and those sorts of things. And it was like an AV show in the truest sense of that. Like 
you would have enjoyed one or the other like markedly less you know these things were very much reliant on each other so the show was kind of a hybrid live dj kind of like performance approach so he was singing on a few of the tracks there was like a costume change there were kind of like theatrics and like performative aspects that i I don't think anybody was necessarily expecting i still think his stage presence maybe is not like quite as natural as he would hope but he did this number where he was kind of doing this like ultra syncopated like spanish speaking slash rapping which worked extremely well but i think most people were were fairly blown away by the presentation and I subsequently went back to the record and I just think that maybe because his style is so open-ended and everything is so like up for debate if you like because it kind of throws all ideas of rhythm and sequencing and you know all the other things that we've come to like you know accept as the norm those things kind of go out the window and when nothing's a given any longer it can be hard to Uh, you know, to really grab a hold of. And I think that's what I was kind of suffering from. And I think going into a record like this, you almost need to like recalibrate your expectations in a way. I think it was an interesting development with some of like the synthesizer-led music um, that came out this year, stuff like TCF, thinking about Mesh, uh, Mesh's music as well that he released on Pan. This is music that, you know, it's like a, a place that I like to inhabit, but when it finishes, I don't really take much away from it because it is working in such a like open-ended way. But I think Archive would probably place him at like a level maybe above guys like TCF and Mesh just because his like application of melody is like when really when you scratch the surface, very, very striking. Like there's some really, really beautiful melodic passages, but they're kind of done in a way that's very cracked, you know, very cracked and non-standard and kind of like, it's just shot through a weird like prism. It's very strange, but um, I think it's a record that's worth revisiting and kind of like removing all of the non-musical elements from it in like your sort of appraisal of it. And I'm also very excited uh, about the prospect of the Bjork record that he supposedly produced much of. I've been hearing other rumors about other people kind of working with Bjork and she definitely seems to be like back in the dance world at the moment. She was actually wearing a very striking like a luminous yellow tennis skirt at the Arca show, which I was a big fan of and some like six inch platform shoes, but- um, This is style watch on RA. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there was definitely an element of that. And Jordan, you've uh, picked Dean Blunt's Black Metal. And I guess he's an artist who is sort of equally hard to get a handle of and really, uh, you know, understand. Yeah, and, and he's honestly like not an artist that I would say I'm super into in general. I was actually at a at a friend's house uh, one night earlier this fall. This guy runs a music blog, and he was playing this dream pop record. And uh, I was like, "Oh, what is this?" And he said, "Oh, this is Dean Blunt." And I said, "You're kidding me." I mean, it just, I mean, it basically kind of took me back to a lot of the sort of shoegazy, dreamy pop music, you know, almost like sort of twee stuff that I was listening to a lot, sort of before I started going out to clubs, like when I was in high school. It's like a college rock record, basically, at least musically. The record came out on Rough Trade, and it actually sounds like a Rough Trade record in the most sort of classical sense. Granted, it has a track called 50 Cent. It has a track called Molly and Aquafina. These are like references that you're not going to get on sort of a classic 
rough trade record. They're also kind of like comically opposed. Yeah, to yeah, the yeah. Feeling of the music itself. Yeah, the the N word makes like a, a number of appearances on this record. It's confrontational. I mean, I think what Dean Blunt does is confrontational, typically, often in in a kind of playful way that leaves you wondering how serious he is. But if you called him out and said you're not being serious someone would say no he is being serious well, you, i mean you mentioned the kind of usage of the n-word i feel like the the sort of racial dimension in dean blunt's music is sort of becoming increasingly pronounced i mean i saw him perform in amsterdam in a, sort of a fairly i guess like upscale cultural like event space so you know it was very much like it wasn't just like a sort of a gig it was like it felt reasonably kind of sophisticated and stayed and he's a visual um, artist himself, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, the, the performance was incredible. Like, it was... This, sadly, was in 2013, but it was one of my favourite uh, live performances of recent times. But it was just striking that... I mean, he always has, a like, a black bouncer on stage when he performs, and he said, uh, you know, and again, it's hard to tell how tongue-in-cheek that is, but basically they're like, it's nice to have a brother in the room with him because, like, you know, this crowd was, like, 100% white that he was performing to. And, you know, they, I feel like he is hyper-conscious of this, like, discrepancy between, like, you know, his kind of experience and perspective as, like, a black person and the audience that seems to have kind of picked up on his music. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's playing music that is completely sort of in a white milieu, you know. Well, and, and I wonder with, the, with this record being on Rough Trade and sounding like a kind of, to an extent, like a kind of a jangly Rough Trade record, to what extent he's, like, interrogating that, you know. Mm-hmm. But it, as, like you say, it's always hard to know to what extent it's sincere and to what extent it's it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like in a way, I, I think, Jordan, our experiences with this record were kind of similar in that he's one of those artists where, whose music I follow quite closely, but I haven't necessarily been like tuned into the soap opera surrounding him and the kind of like media circus and the, you know, the few interviews that he has given. But I was also just blown away by, by just the arrangements by the song craft like i think the strings in particular on this record are fantastic mm. i think something that i kind of really resonates with me is just like singing voice it kind of reminds me of like a, a dub vocalist or something um he has that kind of half spoken half singing kind of thing going on and somehow um, it's it's i mean it even though it does seem to come out of a, a very different musical tradition than the musical accompaniment like i think his vocals just fit really really well with this style of music yeah, absolutely. I think there's something I was going to say. There's something very London about what he does as well. It seems like he's a he's a product, and his kind of art is a product that could only have come from London in a way. And I know that, like, just even watching some of his recent videos, it's something like you know, as a subject matter, he seems to be riffing on and feel very connected to, if you like. As an aside, you, you mentioned the arrangements. I don't know uh, to what extent this is true for black metal, but with the Redeemer which is a very lush record and feels kind of opulent in the way that like a, a kind of a 70s like soft rock record would be opulent or something in places. But you slowly realise that, you know, people online as people are wont to do have like researched this extensively. Everything on it is a sample. There is even like just a, this little guitar twangs and things like that are like sampled from the intros to like records. And the sample sources are like unbelievably diverse. So the the kind of amazing, like, uh, kind of Aaron Copland-style string intro to the Redeemer is like a the intro to a like sort of Z-list R&B record from like 1999, stuff like this. So again, there's this, there's this level of like, you know, you think he's like painstakingly 
kind of got studio musicians and like arranged in the traditional way this kind of pop music but actually it's all like stitched together from other sources yeah i think that has to be true here i mean i know that there were a couple of points when i was listening to some of it where you can almost hear like a loop click back over just just a little bit interesting to me that wasn't even a question i asked myself like i just took it as a given that you know these were original compositions like you know he pulled it off in such a way where you didn't see the gaps you didn't see the cracks between these things um will tell us about your choice it's from suzanne craft i think it's a la artist who's been on uh people's radars this year yeah the album uh, or mini album miss em. i mostly chose it because i thought it was a bit underappreciated but it's sort of um yeah just a incredibly nice ambient i guess you would say ambient album yeah a few years ago philip sherburn in a review of one of suzanne craft's um house tracks he used this term socal lyric in kind of like a tongue-in-cheek way or actually i think he said we shouldn't just think of suzanne craft as socal lyric obviously like southern california lyric but yeah even though this is um it's not like dance music at all it kind of has the same balmy kind of like swaying palm tree sort of vibe to it but there's just something about it that like when you put it on it's like within 10 seconds there's a sort of like feeling of relaxation descends and um it just achieves this sort of soothing quality so easily and it's the kind of record where like anytime i play it for someone pretty quickly they're like damn what is this like even though it's, it's, it's quite subtle it's quite airy and everything yeah, it, it, it just has a, a very potent effect. And in general, too, I just, I'm just i sort of interested by what his deal is. Um, like, he occupies a pretty interesting little sound world. Um, he has a record coming out on um, Animals Dancing, the Australian, it's like a label arm of an Australian party, under the name um, Dude Energy. And it's kind of like, I have no idea how to describe it. It still has the same sort of like, you know, balearic for lack of a better term, this sort of like sunny, breezy thing, but also very, very strange and kind of tacky and tongue in cheek sounding or something. But anyway, um, we've also got a mix upcoming from him, which again, sort of like delves into a just really fascinatingly sort of varied, but also very coherent, you know, sound that's uh, quite vivid, sunny, texturally rich. Um, but anyway, the, this album in particular, yeah, just about 35 minutes or so of, um, yeah, just wonderfully immersive, breezy, ambient music that, yeah, that was fantastic.
Okay, to um, finish us off, as we don't include RA podcasts in our online mixes poll, I'm going to quickly go around the room and have everybody talk about what they saw was a kind of standout RA mix of the year. So, um, Angus, tell us about your selection. My pick was Marco Shuttle, who I think has had a fantastic year. Sing Like a Bird, which came out on uh, Time to Express earlier this year, was, was probably my favourite techno track of the year. And he's just released or perhaps still in the process of releasing an album called Visione, which is uh, really good and kind of pushes his aesthetic in interesting new directions. But he just has a, you can recognize a Marco Shuttle production from a mile off. Although the mix only actually features kind of three of his tracks and a very broad range of other stuff, I feel like it captures what he's about very nicely. Will? I chose Low Tech, basically... Lotech is kind of an interesting character to me. One of the two principal guys behind Workshop, which has for a long time been one of my favorite labels. And I always heard he was a great DJ, but he doesn't really put himself out there too much. And so, yeah, it was just kind of a pleasant surprise to get this mix from Lotech, which is very much one of these mixes. I feel like this has been a recurring theme in this discussion where it's like he, he really has his own, you know, like he occupies his own musical space. And each of these tracks sort of gives you a feeling of like you can't imagine where this came from or what year it's from what label it's from it's all just um yeah sort of like totally fresh in in a way that i feel doesn't happen enough at least with me yeah i guess there's a Casim moss track the second track on is coming out soon on honest john's it's absolutely incredible jordan i went with the shanty celeste podcast i think more and more when i'm thinking about like favorite dj sets or favorite times just hearing records played often it's not at a club. It's not someone famous. It's just like a friend of mine who has really good taste in music. You know, I could be sitting on their couch. They're playing great records. I want to know what all of them are. And this mix kind of felt like that. Shanty works at uh, Idle Hands in Bristol. And again, some of the best DJ sets you'll ever hear from record store employees because they hear everything. This was a mix where when it first came on in the office, I just kept thinking, I want to know what this track is. I want to know what this track is. I want to know what this track is. I think there are two or three tracks that I train spotted from that mix. It was just a really great set. And that's all you can ask for from a, from a mix, I guess. I thought well, I wanted to mention a few mixes. The first of which was Lena Willikens, who's a DJ who's connected to a club called Salon de Amateurs in Dusseldorf. She's someone that I don't think was on the radar of most people this time last year, but she's someone who I think over kind of years of playing has just sort of emerged seemingly out of nowhere with a kind of style that's very unique to her. I think the kind of beauty of her mix was that she was playing music from kind of familiar producers, but the way that she was doing so kind of totally recontextualize it. I liked the pacing of it. I liked the overall tempo. I think there were enough kind of interesting, like standout moments to keep kind of coming back to it. I just think, although, you know, you wouldn't say anything that she was doing was radically different. It did show just how much like, you know, nuance we can sort of achieve with these stars of music and how just like coloring outside the lines a little bit and really can, you know, help a DJ to stand out. We mentioned the Panda Street Steppers mix that we have coming up before, so we won't go into that too much. But the last one I want to talk about was DJ Tay from the Tech Life crew, whose mix we're putting out just before New Year's as a kind of like alternative party mix, if you like. So obviously Rashad passed away this year, and I think like the collective response from that group has kind of been fantastic in a way. 
you know, they're increasingly on the radars of people. They're getting footwork out there in a way that's kind of very coherent and very meaningful. There's like 20 of these guys or something now, because uh, we'd initially asked for a like a tech life crew mix or something. But, you know, obviously these guys are playing so much of each other's music anyway that, you know, any of them pretty much could have done it. But I think this mix does a great job of just like, kind of not only encapsulating like what they're doing as artists, but just like why we're all like talking about footwork and why it is becoming a global thing. We are for shit. 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 That Molly, 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 that Molly,